Welcome to The Disaster Project, a podcast about everything disaster. I'm your host, Dr. Larissa Unruh. In light of the tragedies that continue to unfold around the Turkey-Syria earthquakes, I thought it would be informative to talk today about earthquakes, how they've impacted the United States in the past, and what threat they pose in the future. Since I'm from Oregon, the potential earthquake that I think about the most is the impending one associated with the Cascadia Fault Line in the Pacific Northwest. Just as a little background, a fault line is a fracture area in the Earth's crust that allows the area on either side of the fracture to move relative to each other. At these locations, there's a large amount of stress placed on the plates, so when they do move, either by slipping over or under each other or moving side to side, the release of energy causes an earthquake and potentially changes the entire landscape around the fault. This is how mountain ranges are formed. Today we're going to talk to an actual earthquake expert, Dr. Chris Goldfinger, a professor at Oregon State University who specializes in marine geology, geophysics, and paleoseismology, who has spent his career learning and teaching about earthquakes. Dr. Goldfinger obtained both a BA and BS in geology from Humboldt State University and a master's and PhD in structural geology from Oregon State University. This episode will cover the historic impacts that earthquakes have had in the U.S., the risk of future North American earthquakes, how a high-magnitude earthquake in the U.S. could compare to the recent Turkey-Syria earthquakes and the 2011 earthquake in Japan, and what experts in disaster preparedness are doing to protect the populations in high-risk areas from the big one when it actually does hit. Thank you so much for coming on the Disaster Project, Dr. Goldfinger. Let's start out with the obligatory, how did you get into this career question? I love hearing about people's career paths. I guess the short version is my dad was a NASA engineer and sciences. So I was kind of always aimed in that direction somewhat. And uh, in high school, I saw, you know, biologists cutting open frogs in their lab coats. And then I saw the geology people were loading up a station wagon, heading for the Death Valley, going to the mountains and everything. And I thought, that looks like a lot more fun. <laughs> it was a simple decision. Much later on, I had a very well-known professor named Bob Yates, who was an earthquake geologist. And he'd, he'd been through oil companies and done a lot of the sort of traditional geology. And he, one day he said, you know, one day it just seemed like I was working on fault pathology, just a lot of very old dead things. And he just said, I just got interested in working on things that you could actually see happening today that were relevant. And also that in geology, we have a hard time even understanding what's going on today, let alone projecting into the past. So, so I kind of followed in his footsteps in a way. Let's jump into the topic, which is earthquakes. Obviously, they relate to disasters because in many cases, they are disasters or they at least cause the disaster. But what actually is an earthquake? Well, so earthquakes are, are by the Earth's tectonic plates and plate tectonics is kind of a, uh, it's crazy to say, but before 1964, we didn't really know how, how the Earth moved and how faults work and how mountains were built. The earth is a bunch of semi-rigid plates all moving around, all driven by convection of the mantle. And so at the boundaries of those plates, we have various kinds of conflicts. You know, things are rubbing against side by side or going underneath. And, um, and it's but just being driven, the force is being uh, provided by the, the earth's mantle convection that's driving the mountain building and all that. Um, oftentimes, the biggest earthquakes are caused by subduction zones where one plate goes underneath another. And that's because at, at a shallow angle like this, you have a very big surface area. And big surface area means big earthquake. 
Um, but that may not be the most damaging type. It, it, it can be, but that's, that's generally what governs the size of earthquakes on sort of plate boundary scale. At least in my lifetime, I don't remember there being any big earthquakes in the U.S. Have there been any earthquakes in the U.S. or even in North America that have really made a big impact? Probably the biggest, most damaging one in recent times wasn't that recent. It's 1989, uh, Loma Prieta in the Bay Area. Before that, there were big earthquakes in 1994 and 1971 in L.A., uh, 1933 in Long Beach, and then the one that everybody knows about is 1906 in San Francisco. So we've had a lot of big damaging earthquakes, almost all of them in California, you know, in recent history. It sounds like California is a hotbed for earthquakes. Are there other places in North America that are at high risk of earthquakes? Well, yeah, California is high on the list, but the Pacific Northwest also is as well. And you don't hear much about the Pacific Northwest earthquakes because we don't have regular reminders of how active it is. But Pacific Northwest is a one of these subduction zones where the where one plate's going under underneath another and and the recurrence time for these big earthquakes is three to 500 years, roughly. So the last big one was about 323 years ago now. So there's no, no written historical record of that, although Native Americans were here and they have legends. So the sleeper is really the Pacific Northwest. It's gonna make a much bigger earthquake than, than is possible anywhere else uh, in the country except Alaska. And Alaska is also a subduction zone. The 19, I forgot to mention the 1964 uh, Alaskan earthquake was an M. 9.2. So the biggest that's happened in North America in, in historic times. Before an earthquake happens, is there any warning that there's going to be an earthquake or does it just boom happen? Well, for the most part, it just happens. There's really very little warning. In, in a few rare cases, there's one famous case in China, there might be a lot of little foreshocks and the animals just went crazy. Everything from dogs to frogs just went wild because the foreshocks were small and continuous for, for several days in advance, but that's really, really unusual. Uh, usually there's no warning that we can detect presently. It doesn't mean that there aren't signals out there that we're missing, but currently there's just really nothing that we're, that we're using to try to get at some sort of a warning signal. Could you explain what a foreshock is? Yeah, it's just a small earthquake. It's just like the the big fault is just letting out little squeaks and peeps and, the, and they may be too small to, to be um, noticeable. They're probably recordable by instruments, but the dogs and, and animals pick these up more easily. They're more sensitive to it. You had mentioned that there are different types of earthquakes. How would an earthquake in North America compare to the recent Turkey-Syria earthquake? Would it be the same type? Well, so Syria and Turkey is a, a very complicated plate boundary, and there are three of them that come together at a point, not, not quite a point, but a complicated kind of a mess at that area in Turkey. And so we have one, we have an area just like that in the Pacific Northwest in California where the San Andreas Fault terminates against two other faults, one of them being the Cascadia subduction zone. And it's very tectonically actively. It's, it's the biggest um, or the highest level of activity in the country but very few people live there and damaging earthquakes are uncommon from that area. Unfortunately, in Turkey, the triple junction is on land. The one in Northern California is just barely on land. And there are large, highly populated towns sitting directly on top of it. So the type of earthquake can be similar. Uh, strike slip faults in uh, you know, California that went off in 1971 and 1994 are similar types of faults. 
and the populations in in LA, of course, are, are sitting sitting on top of them are, are also high. So the risk is high, but the difference is the built infrastructure is quite different. So the devastation in Turkey was an infrastructure issue and related to the fact that it was right next to a bunch of populated areas, correct? Right. So a famous seismologist once said, uh, you know, earthquakes don't kill people, buildings kill people. And an earthquake would just be an exciting day if you were standing out in a field. When you put a city on top of that, all of the risk to people comes from damage and collapsed buildings. In the best case scenario, say someplace like Japan, very little of the infrastructure was damaged in the 2011 earthquake, for example. And it was just the exciting day, pretty much, except for the tsunami part. That's a different, a different issue. But if you have an earthquake like that, like one of the LA earthquakes, and you put that underneath a town in Turkey, the outcome is very different just because of the weak, fragile built environment. You had mentioned tsunamis. Can you talk about what those are? Uh, sure. Tsunami is, uh, is a sea wave that's created by ground motion of the earth. And they're usually created by uh, subduction zone earthquakes. So when you have one of these subduction zones where a plate's going in under the other, you build up stress in one plate. And when it releases, it creates a, a really big wave with a wavelength of, say, 100 kilometers and uh, traveling at high speeds and outward and inward toward the coast. And so the, the local coasts in, in subduction zones, mostly in the Pacific, are very prone to these very big waves that arrive with very little time to react. In the Pacific Northwest, what is actually projected to happen when that earthquake hits? Well, so the, the Cascadia subduction zone, which is what underlies uh, all of the Pacific Northwest from Northern California to the middle of Vancouver Island. So that fault's a thousand kilometers long. It's very much a twin to the one in Northeast Japan that went off in 2011. And so in the, in the worst case, that fault could produce an earthquake of magnitude nine to 9.2 is, is probably about the top end. It can also produce many smaller earthquakes, but typically uh, in historic times, it's been very, very quiet and people are concerned that that quiescence may, may favor you know, the next earthquake being a very large one. Uh, so a magnitude nine earthquake coming from that would be very much like uh, what happened in, in Japan. Uh, there'd be uh, three to six minutes of strong ground motion and there'd be a tsunami of 15 to 20 meters or so coming into to all the coastlines and that would sweep into the Puget Sound as well at a lower size, but still a, a big damaging wave. As far as infrastructure, what is being done in the Pacific Northwest to try to mitigate the damages that might happen after an earthquake? Well, so that's a, that's a tough one. Uh, so the Pacific Northwest, like a lot of cities in the world, including the cities that were damaged in Turkey, is infrastructure that was built prior to any understanding of faults or plate tectonics or, or anything. And so we have uh, an infrastructure that's between 150 to, you know, to up to present time years old and and only building codes only cover the most recent construction current construction so we have very weak infrastructure much like turkey and there are no requirements for retrofitting so they're just sitting there the buildings are in use and so that's our that's our problem so cities and counties and states are requiring in some cases retrofits to to the buildings that they own and they have control over so schools are being retrofit, bridges, things like that. Institutional buildings that are government-owned are starting to move along and get some retrofits, although the progress is, is painfully slow, but at least it's happening. In the private sector, there's really nothing 
going on. Individual companies can choose to to make these um, retrofits if they if they wish, and a few are doing that, but it's uncommon at this point. So we're just kind of hanging on to the bottom rung of this ladder toward uh, resiliency in the Pacific Northwest. Have any building codes changed because of new understandings about earthquakes? Prior to about 1933, buildings were just built to stand up in the wind and, and for gravity loads. And in 1933, there was an earthquake in Long Beach. And uh, at that point, a lot of schools were damaged. And so they agitated to start instituting seismic loadings and building codes. Each time there's a, there's a significant earthquake, the, the requirements are refined and improved to the point where they're quite good now, as they are around the world. These are now international building codes. And we, we know how to do it. We know how much it costs and, and all of that. So the codes are, are pretty good. The, the problem is the, the buildings that were never built with those codes. Are all new homes required to be earthquake-proof in the Pacific Northwest? Well, earthquake-proof would be a word that's way too strong. There's nothing that's earthquake-proof. But most wood frame houses, which, is, which are the most common thing in the, in the western U.S. where the earthquakes are, they actually don't do too badly in earthquakes. Wood frames with nails, they have a certain ability to flex. And as long as you take care with the utility connections, the gas, the electricity, the water, and you bolt the whole thing to foundation, wood frame houses tend to do okay, at least in terms of life safety. They're not likely to collapse and kill the, the occupants. They may be heavily damaged and all. But, you know, in the Pacific Northwest, one thing is that uh, before plate tectonics, a lot of house, houses were built uh, before these codes and the houses were just sitting on the foundation, not attached at all. So when the earth moves, the house is over here and the foundation is now over here and it just slides off and it's, it destroys itself. So one of, one of the simple retrofits is, is to go around and just bolt your house to the foundation. So when the earth moves, the, the house at least goes with it. So that's underway. And, and, but, that, but again, that's by choice. There's no requirement to do that. What impact would an earthquake and then the tsunami that happened afterwards have on the coastline? The first thing that's going to happen is the coast, when the upper plate, which is North America, where we all live, unflexes, the coastline will drop about a meter. And so the coastline will be semi-permanently changed. The bays will get larger, the estuaries will get larger and deeper and things like that. And the, and the shoreline in places where topography is low-lying will move landward, it'll move inland. So that's, that's a semi-permanent change. But the other thing that'll happen, you know, just a few minutes later is a tsunami will sweep in. And so in the Pacific Northwest, we have a lot of coastal towns that are, you know, it's very picturesque fishing towns and things like that. And, and a lot of communities that are in low-lying areas that'll be inundated by the, the tsunami. So uh, we're in a, we're not in a, as, as difficult a position as Japan, which had large cities that were right on the coast. We don't have that, at least. But we have a lot of small, you know, a lot of small towns that are, that are in, in tough shape and places where there's, where evacuation is not, uh, either not possible or just not, or, or very difficult. What kind of individual earthquake preparedness should people be doing? So some of the simple things that you can do, I mentioned already, you know, bolting the house to the foundation. If you're a good do-it-yourselfer, you can do this yourself. Otherwise, hire a contractor uh, to do it. It's, uh, for most people, it's not wildly expensive, in most cases for wood frame houses. Uh, another simple thing that people can do themselves or hire it out is to strap down your water heater. A lot of times these big 50-gallon water heaters are just sitting on the floor in the basement or something, and they can tip over 
and they're usually gas fired so they can break the gas line you know when that happens also 50 gallon water heater has 50 gallons of water in it which might be your reserve water supply so you would lose that as well so strapping the water heater to the framing of the house is another simple thing folks can do and then just storing food and water and uh, and whatnot in the event that you're kind of camping in your unheated unpowered house for a couple of weeks after the earthquake so those those are the simplest most obvious things uh, that you can do there are a few other things that require a little more thought and thinking about where you're the buildings that you work in most people live in the wood frame houses and work in in other buildings and so what to do in case of an earthquake may depend on you know if you're working in a, a brick urm building unreinforced masonry building built in 1917 you might want to consider either other places to work or, or what you're going to do in the event of an earthquake on the other hand if you're working in a newer building built since say 1994 then you're pretty well assured that the building isn't going to collapse or be heavily damaged in the earthquake so what i tell my friends which is somewhat different than what you hear from the agencies is to consider you know what kind of building you're in and what what is your plan going to be uh, during an earthquake and actually have a plan so that you're not just reacting to it at, at the time it happens what would your plan be well in my case the office that i've worked in for many years is a collapse hazard building it's called the lift slab building the ones that you saw in the news in turkey where the all the floors are pancaked on top of each other and my building is, is almost certainly going to do that in even a modest earthquake. And so my plan was was really, I turned down offices in nice, nicer areas of campus and I, uh, that, that were even worse than this building. And I, I picked an office that was on the ground floor near a door. And so my personal plan is to, is to get out of the building at the first hint of light shaking. So in some cases that's, that's possible. In some cases that's a bad idea. But this is uh, something that's been called situational awareness, just being aware of where your office is in the building, where what kind of building it is, what's, what's your plan going to be. And in my case, evacuating the building at the first sign of light shaking is the, the best plan. And I can probably you know, pull half the people out on my hallway, uh, out into the parking lot at the same time. Part of the understanding of that is also knowing what the risk is. And in our case, we're in a subduction zone we're not likely to have a crustal fault like in Turkey go off right underneath our feet where there's no warning time and no reaction time at all. In our case, we have a subduction zone where the shaking will start with light ground motions and we'll have almost a whole minute of that before the damaging heavy shaking arrive. So that opens up possibilities for reacting to it. What are aftershocks? Are those just smaller earthquakes after a big earthquake? Well, they're just smaller earthquakes that happen. Usually when a, when a big fault moves, it transfers the load to other local faults and they all start crackling and popping off smaller earthquakes as they've been overloaded by the main shock of a big earthquake. And these sort of, uh, they can be big, but they taper off in relatively short span of time, days to weeks, but in some cases can take years to taper off. So we talked a little bit about what would happen at the coast, but what would happen in more inland areas like Portland, Seattle, Vancouver? Pacific Northwest gets a little break because those cities, you know, the big ones are Portland, Seattle, Victoria, Vancouver, and then followed by Eugene and Medford and, and the medium-sized cities. We're lucky that, that all of those cities are well inland, and that means there's some delay time between the time the earthquake actually starts far offshore and the time that heavy shaking arrives, the damaging waves. 
And during that time, what happens is you get about a minute to maybe as much as two minutes of P wave shaking. So there's a little bit, a little tiny bit of warning time, and that's used for electronic warning systems. But a, a well-tuned person can also perceive this. It's very easy to feel and react to it. But once the earthquake starts, though, unfortunately, all of the cities in the Pacific Northwest are in the same situation. We have a high percentage of unreinforced masonry buildings or what's called non-ductile concrete, the, the pancaking type buildings. We have lots and lots and lots of those that were built before plate tectonics and before building codes. So if it were to happen tomorrow, uh, before we get very far down the track of resilience, there'd be major damage to, to all of these buildings. And then, then it would come down to whether they were occupied or not. Does the earthquake happen at night or did it happen on a weekend? Or did it happen summer versus winter? Things like that actually make a big difference. So there's a big element of, unfortunately, a big element of chance to, you know, how people are going to survive this type of event from where we sit today. Does the Pacific Northwest have any mass notification systems in place? Well, so we have uh, earthquake early warning systems, and you can subscribe to these, and they can, uh, you can get them on your phone, and, and it'll go off. And the warning system, if it works perfectly and your phone goes off, let's say you're in Seattle, and the earthquake starts down in Northern California, and the warning goes off from sensors that are in Northern California, you actually may have, say, two minutes of warning time, maybe even a little bit more to react to it. And two minutes doesn't sound like a lot, but it, when this is happening to you, it's actually an eternity. You can do a lot in two minutes. So yes, we have those. They've just been instituted recently, and people are mostly not used to them yet, maybe not even aware of them yet, but they do exist and they're operational now. Any projected death counts for an earthquake like this? Well, there are ones. Oregon State Geologic Agency has one. I'm not going to quote numbers because I think the numbers just aren't that instructive. It's, it's really going to make a, a, a huge difference, whether it's night, weekend, summer, winter, things like that. So the numbers are really all over the place. Uh, there are some numbers embedded in something called the Oregon Resilience Report. It's produced for the state legislature a few years ago. And it was in the low number of thousands. But I think it could be a lot higher. It could be a lot lower. Just It just really depends on uh, mainly the timing. How does the timing affect the amount of people that die? Well, in so in two ways. People are going to be either at work or at home or somewhere else. And if they're at work, let's say, let's suppose you had uh, the worst case scenario might be a, a Friday afternoon in July. So the beaches are loaded with people when the tsunami comes in and people are at work or maybe getting out of town a little <laughs> early on Friday afternoon and the bridges are packed and the bridges will collapse. And so that's the worst case scenario. You have the most people exposed to the tsunami and structural collapses at the same time. Best case scenario might be a, you know, a, a Sunday morning in, in the middle of February. There's nobody on the beach. There's nobody at work, things like that. And then the, the infrastructure damage uh, will kill you know, far fewer people. So there's a, just a huge difference between those kinds of scenarios. In Turkey and Syria, a lot of people died after the initial earthquake because it was winter and it was cold and there was exposure to the elements. In the Pacific Northwest, is that also a consideration? Well, yeah, that could happen. I mentioned the best case scenario being a winter weekend day, but you're, but you're right. The, if, if it's cold and you suddenly have no power and you weren't dressed for it and you're not prepared for it, then the same thing in, uh, would happen in, in the Northwest that would happen um, in, in Turkey, people would be exposed to the weather and hypothermia might be a, a situation where 
Uh, you have people trapped in structures or, or just maybe isolated out on the coast without power and without any way to deal with it. And they may be on their own for a while. The big government agencies will round up the cavalry and head out toward the Pacific Northwest. But in really bad weather, aircraft operations will be limited, ship operations will be limited. It may take a while to get to folks. What is a while? Well, worst case scenario, if they had an earthquake just in the at the timing of a big storm, we just had one recently that had feet of snow in all over the Pacific Northwest and all the way down to San Diego. In a situation like that, a while could be a week. The Navy plans to send aircraft carriers and big ships up there, but if they're sitting offshore in a gale, they won't be able to fly or do much. And so we kind of have to think of these uh, scenarios in a, in a pretty pessimistic way because, for example, the last Cascadia earthquake was, was the night of January 26, 1700. And if that had been a January night in modern times, it would have been quite difficult to get to a lot of people. Are different kinds of disasters like landslides associated with earthquakes? Oh, sure. Yeah. So we, we tend to focus on the building collapses and people trapped and, and those, those things that are first order, very obvious things, but a lot of other things will happen as well. So bridges will collapse, landslides will block highways, and in the Pacific Northwest, we have landslides every time it rains. So if you add an earthquake to that, especially in the winter, most of the roads to the coast and a lot of roads throughout the western part of the state, and Washington, and the same is true, British Columbia, will close. And so that's part of the isolation equation. So other things that happen are liquefaction. So cities, parts of cities that are built along rivers or along the water, like Seattle and Portland, a lot of those areas will likely liquefy and cause settlement damage or even sometimes overturning of buildings. Another thing that doesn't come up as often is, uh, so for example, in, in Portland, we have a bunch of tanks that have all the fuels that are used by used in the state, everything from diesel to gasoline to jet fuel, things like that. And these tanks are sitting along the Willamette River. They too were built before there were any codes for things like this. So when the Willamette River sediments liquefy, the tanks will likely rupture and spill millions of gallons of fuel into the Willamette and the Columbia River. So there's probably gonna be you know, an environmental disaster along with just the loss of, you know, loss of fuel to do the things we do every day. Is anything being done to try to make those more earthquake safe? Well, uh, currently there's no requirement for the private owners to do anything with those tanks. There are movements afoot to try to require this. It hasn't been done yet. I think the legislature is considering, considering these ideas. But these are some of the obvious, the obvious steps that need to be taken that haven't yet been uh, gotten a toehold. Are places like Japan ahead of us as far as earthquake safety? Well, yes. Japan, you could say, uh, not euphemistically, is about a thousand years ahead of anyone else in the world. And this is because they have had a, a well-developed society with written records for longer than that. And so over hundreds and hundreds of years, people got very tired uh, of having their shogun's castles knocked down time and time and time again and things like this. And they had a totalitarian society and people could order things to be done. And so things got better and better and better and their old building stock was destroyed repeatedly. And so by the time you get to uh, present day, there's not much old building stock left. It's all either been destroyed by earthquakes or taken down or retrofitted. And so they're well, well ahead of anyone else. And uh, 
in 2011, the, there was very little damage from the earthquake. A few houses lost tiles off the roof. Uh, there were some, you know, minor damages from that, but it was really, uh, they really performed really well. Even though the expected earthquake wasn't as big as what they got, their preparations handled it quite well. It was the tsunami where things didn't go nearly as well. From a personal standpoint, is there anything that you can do to protect yourself if there were to be a tsunami? Well, no, there's lots of things uh, that you can do. Uh, one of the things that when I, I was in the tsunami or I was in the, the earthquake in 2011, I, was, I happened to be there for, ironically, for an earthquake meeting. And when I flew home from Japan the next week, I actually wound up feeling kind of optimistic about, you know, having seen how things went in Japan and what went well and what didn't go well. I got this odd optimism for the Pacific Northwest to, to see that this is not a, you know, this is actually a tractable problem. It's a huge, very expensive tractable problem, but it is, there are things you can do. So in tsunami prone areas along the coast, the higher bluffs, towns like, uh, you know, half of the town of Newport, for example, is sitting on a high bluff. They're in pretty good shape. The waterfront part of the town and, and a place called South Beach is not in good shape. And so they can, places that are not, not in good shape can look at their evacuation routes and think about, do they have time? Do they have the 15 or 20 minutes uh, that they need to get out of there? And is there a viable place to go in that much time? You know, in thinking about uh, medical facilities, are they, where do they sit relative to the tsunami and things like this? And so the Pacific Northwest is just at the beginning of evolving toward resiliency. Uh, they're considering these issues. Some towns, unfortunately, the decisions are often made a town by town instead of in a statewide or regional sense. And, and one town will make a good decision, another town will make a not so good decision. So we're not really all quite singing the same tune yet, but at least we're starting to move in the right direction. And there's just the beginnings of starting to build vertical evacuation structures, which are structures that you can go up on the roof and, and be assured of, uh, you know, that the tsunami won't knock down the building. Uh, that's a common tactic used in Japan, and we're just starting to do that now. So we have the beginnings of moving in that direction. Have any places in the Pacific Northwest been in contact with experts in Japan to figure out what we should be doing in order to be more prepared? Oh, sure. Yeah, there, there are a lot of engineers who work on these problems who've traveled to Japan and seen, seen how it works and see what's been done there. And, and it, this is great because Japan has had such a big head start that we don't have to reinvent the wheel. We can go and see what's been done, maybe even improve on it a bit as we go. So these things are not, they're not, the concepts aren't difficult. And I think in the engineering community, and I'm a geologist, but I, my perception is that they're, they're very well informed and they know what to do. And, and the problem is not with the, the doing of it. The problem is, you know, getting people to do it. I remember in elementary school, we used to have duck and cover earthquake drills. Do you think that most people in the Pacific Northwest understand the risk of earthquakes, or is it just something that is kind of like in the back of our minds, we know it's a possibility? Yeah, I did too. And, um, and so my perception is no, that people don't really fully understand the risk, or they, or they, they might see holes in the, the thinking about it, but aren't, aren't sure you know, what to do about it. So we all, we all did the, the duck and cover drills. And that uh, advice that's coming from, or guidance that's coming from agencies, uh, emergency management agencies, goes all the way back to, to the 1950s when that's when they rec what they recommended people do in case of nuclear attack. I don't think it would have done much good you know, at the time, but it was better than nothing. But that advice has now been expanded to all hazards. 
and it's now called duck cover and hold on, get under a strong desk and, and write it out. And so, you know, a big question is how well would that work in a place like the Pacific Northwest? And that's, that's a tough one. That's the recommendation from FEMA and state agencies commonly. And it works great in Japan where if you get under a desk or something, you're not worried in Japan about the building collapsing. You're just worried about ceiling tiles and light fixtures and bookcases tipping over and things like that. But when you go to the Pacific Northwest or in a lot of cases, uh, California, that's not the main issue. The main issue is the building collapse and will, will being under a desk, you know, help in that situation. Are there any public preparedness efforts that are going on in the Pacific Northwest to try to keep people informed or update them about the risks? There are lots of them. They tend to they tend to come from state agencies that are the emergency management organizations in, in the states. That's sort of the conduit of this sort of information. And so the effort to sort of get the word out is uh, is there and it's doing pretty well. So in the Pacific Northwest, for example, most most people now know that there's an issue and whether they know what to do about it or if it's even clear what to do about it, it's at least getting out there. And so now you can hear on radio stations, you can hear there's a little cottage industry of emergency preparedness kits, radio commercials for it, something you wouldn't have heard 10 years ago. So the word is getting out there. And the question, the big question that's still a question mark for some people anyway is, what should governments be advising or guiding people to actually do during the earthquake? It's easy enough to plan, you know, store some water, store some food and things like that. But what currently we're, we're only advising sort of a one size fits all plan to drop cover and hold on. And for people in collapse hazards building, uh, hazard buildings, it's not clear that that's going to save the most lives, at least in my mind. Does the government have stockpiles of supplies for these kinds of situations? Well, in, in some cases, yes. So FEMA has stockpiles of supplies and trailers and things like that for sort of all hazards, hurricanes, earthquakes, tornadoes, you know, have a lot of common ground in that sense. We're, we're pretty good in the U.S. We're pretty good at responding to things like this. So we're okay there. And the, and the, and the military services have plans to come up to Cascadia in, in these events and, and there have been significant meetings and exercises to, to help plan for these things. So we're in pretty good shape on the response side, I would say. So it sounds like we need some preparedness. We're pretty good on response. And as far as mitigation, we could learn a lot from Japan. Could you talk to us about your most memorable earthquake experience? You had mentioned that you were in the 2011 earthquake in Japan. Would you say that was your most memorable experience? Oh, oh, hands down. Yeah, Japan, that was really something. We were at an earthquake meeting discussing the Sumatra earthquake in 2004. There were maybe 40 of us in a, in a room and we were someone was changing slides. We had Indonesian colleagues and a colleague of mine was putting a thumb drive in the laptop when this earthquake started. And it was, um, it was the third earthquake of the week. There'd been two others that turned out to be, in retrospect, they turned out to be foreshocks of the big one. And then uh, we felt, um, we felt about a minute of, of light shaking, which is what I mentioned, you know, people would feel in the Pacific Northwest. And you get a whole minute to kind of take it in and decide what you're gonna do, if anything. And I, my reaction was, well, I, I know I'm in Japan, so whatever this is, I'm pretty sure the building's not gonna come down around us. And that was, 
that gave us a lot of comfort that whatever we did, we'd probably be fine. We weren't going to wind up under a pile of concrete. So we were able to sort of observe this earthquake unfold, and we did what the emergency managers don't recommend as we went outside. And that's interesting because people are trained to duck cover and hold on and not to evacuate buildings. But people's instinct is to evacuate. They do this in Japan, even when they've been trained to do otherwise, and that's what we did. So we went outside and we watched the, the building swaying and the flagpole on top of the roof whipping around. And it was, um, it was the most impressive natural thing I've ever seen. You could practically feel the, the planetary scale of the Earth's plates grinding together. And we watched a paradigm change in, in real time because Northeast Japan was supposed to have an 8.5 is, is their maximum sort of the policy said their maximum earthquake size would be. But once it hit three minutes, we knew we knew it was a nine. And all of us earthquake geologists, we, we looked at our watches. And we just, you know, when it hit three minutes, we knew. And so we were very fortunate to be able to watch this play out in real time and experience it, something we normally just you know, it's it's a bit abstract for us, you know, the people that work on this stuff and to actually ride through it. And then of course it became horrible when the then we we immediately also realized that um, that a tsunami must have been launched and it would be on its way to the coast. And so we went to the the university's cafeteria and watched watched it come in on live TV and that was just awful because we knew people didn't have time to, to get away. But we all learned a lot from it, and I was able to bring that back to my work, and I, that got me involved, kind of pulled me out of my, you know, scientific zone and got me involved in, in thinking about the earthquake as a real thing in a place that I really live, and uh, thinking about how the Pacific Northwest would fare in, in an earthquake like that. I think it's very fortunate that your conference wasn't closer to the coast. It would be terrible to have all of the world's experts on earthquakes being taken out by an earthquake. Yeah, no, that's a that's a really good point. And I've been to a couple of, ironically, tsunami meetings that were held in hotels on beaches in subduction zones. And we're all sitting there looking at each other going, whose idea was this? It's really, you know, it, it did not make sense. And in fact, one hotel we were in, in in Sumatra was destroyed, you know, like three or four years later by a tsunami. So, So, yeah, you're right about that. That is all the questions that I have. Is there anything else that you wanted to bring up? Um, there's one thing I'd, I'd like to touch on a little more directly, the, the business of drop cover and hold on. When I got back from Japan, I thought a little bit more. I'd never really given much thought to earthquake protective actions for myself. You know, I mostly just work on the science of the earthquakes. But then I thought about the building I'm, I, I worked in at the time and thought about, well, how am I going to get out of this building? And it didn't look too bad. I had a slider window I could go out and I was on the second floor at that time. And so I thought, started thinking about more about this. And then our, our university had, uh, you know, participated along with the whole Northwest in, in these um, uh, drills every October to take a moment to put your plan into action for in case of an earthquake. And the advice was drop cover and hold on. And, and having just been in a, an M9 earthquake, I thought, okay, so if I get under my not that strong desk, desks these days are not like they were in the, the 50s, and I'm going to wait for a whole minute through this light shaking for my building to collapse. And I thought, no, I don't, I don't think I'm going to do that. I'm going to evacuate. I'm going to get out. 
And I started thinking more and more about this, about the guidance that's coming from the federal agencies to just drop cover and hold on. And, and that's what you do in all cases. And so now, you know, a few people are starting to ask the question and uh, not just a few people in the Northwest, but people around the world. So Israel, for example, and, and Mexico City, Mexico, the country, uh, have a different policy. And their policy is if you're on the ground floor and near a door and there's nothing dangerous outside, that evacuation is your recommended option. And if you're in a newer building, that drop, co drop cover and hold on is the best option. So they have a split policy. And in the U.S., we just don't do that. And so some of us are wondering why we don't do that. And mainly the reason seems to be that we've inherited this policy from the nuclear attack days. You know, it was just spread out to all hazards. And it's, but it's never actually been vetted and it doesn't, it isn't really supported by any data. So we're, as a country, we're giving people advice that hasn't really been tested and hasn't really been vetted well at all and may be wrong for the case where buildings will collapse. So what I'm hoping for is a, is a debate on this topic you know, sometime in the relatively near future so that we can give people a, a more nuanced message, maybe like what Mexico does. And Mexico's had a warning system since 1989, I think it is, and give people a better shot at getting out of buildings that are likely to collapse as the ones did in Turkey. So that's my hope for the near future, that we can evolve a little bit and, uh, and not just have a one-size-fits-all policy for earthquake protective action. Disaster research is really hard because it's hard to predict when an earthquake's going to happen in order to do prospective research. But has there been any retrospective or theoretical research about whether it's better to exit a building or stay under your desk if an earthquake happens? Surprisingly, there has not really been any research on that topic. And part of the reason is that there's very little data. So after a big earthquake like Turkey or like any of the others in recent times, Medical teams go in to help people and rescue teams go in to help survivors get out. Geologists go in to study the faults and engineers go in to study the building failures. But nobody actually goes in to collect data about what did people do in terms of protective actions. And uh, so there's a data gap there. There's just very little data. So the, the few papers that have ever been written are just sort of anecdotal stories that people picked up along the way of I did this and this is what happened and so on. And surprisingly, those tend to support evacuation. People may get hurt while they're evacuating, but they won't get killed by the collapsed building where their chances of, of that are, are lower. So that's where we stand. There's a big data gap. And, and right now in Turkey, I asked a colleague who's over there doing the geology, you know, hey, if you run into any stories about people, what, you know, what they actually did during the earthquake and what happened, you know, let me know. Because there just isn't anyone collecting that type of data. It's very difficult to get. And there's nobody whose mission it is to really go get it. You know, the, the medical side, they're just treating the injuries and they may or may not know anything about what happened. But that data just isn't collected. So that's our biggest problem. Who would even do that research? Would it be public health research or would it be like a social science research? Yeah, that's tough to say. It just doesn't fall in anybody's purview right now. The, the medical folks, they have their hands full just, just trying to treat people. And everybody has their hands full doing you know, the job that they're there to do. The engine and the engineers and the geologists, they arrive much later and their mission is not really to do that. So it's just, it's just falling in a crack. Uh, whatever's available is, is falling in a crack. So it's a, a field that a, a medical or a social scientist type group might be able to go back in 
and do something like that. It's just very uncommon right now. Well, this has been a pleasure. Thank you so much for coming on The Disaster Project. I think that this topic is very relevant, especially now that it has some public attention in light of the Syrian-Turkey earthquakes, and hopefully people start to make their own plans and we can move forward with earthquake preparedness. Music track courtesy of Pixabay and composed by Alex Zavesa. I'm your host, Larissa Unruh, and I'll see you next time on The Disaster Project.